Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today, two guests that our listeners already know, uh, my colleague and close friend, Bob Greenlee, and my close friend and sometimes colleague, uh, Jamie Rubin. We're going to talk about the multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill uh, that has been proposed by President Biden. So guys, thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Great. Um, so you guys are both uh, experts in infrastructure. In fact, Jamie, you're the CEO of a major infrastructure company. Why don't you quickly uh, tell the audience about that so they know that they're hearing from an expert? Um, appearance. Thank you. Yeah, I'm the CEO of Meridium North America, which is a um, the North American arm of a global fund that builds and develops complicated infrastructure projects ranging from roads, bridges, tunnels to clean energy projects and everything in between. And then, Bob, when you worked in, in state government in Illinois, ultimately you were in charge of all of the money going into infrastructure and, and so coming from the federal government to the state and then going out, right? Yeah, both the both the federal side of the state infrastructure program as well as managing some of the capital budget and kind of debt service for the operating style of the pay-as-you-go capital budget. That's right. So we have, we have two clear experts here plus me. So I guess the first question is, you know, we, we take it as an article of faith that our infrastructure is crumbling and we've got to invest in new infrastructure. Is that accurate? Um, well, I'll start. Uh, I would say it's accurate. I, it's funny. I was reading a, there was a, the, the term crumbling um, is generally what's used. And now even apparently that even is even under, um, is under scrutiny. There was a piece by Brookings today around the infrastructure bill that where the writer was making the case that uh, we're dooming infrastructure by calling it crumbling and we should call it something else, which I think makes exactly zero difference. Um, yeah, I think you could take it as an article of faith, an accurate article of faith that infrastructure is crumbling. Um, you know, the usual, um, the measure that we usually look to is the um, the annual report by the American Society of Construction Engineers comes out every year and grades both the national infrastructure and the state level infrastructure. And inevitably, the state, the country is given a D plus or a C minus or something. And all the states are given anything from sort of failing to C. And, and look, it's it's fair to say that, you know, the, the Society of Civil Engineers that are paid to build infrastructure will have every interest in saying that the infrastructure is in bad shape. Um, but it is fair to say that we as a nation underinvest in infrastructure, particularly kind of the core roads and bridges that are unsexy, but need to be paid for and need to be maintained. So part of the debate over this bill so far has been, what is infrastructure? So two questions for you guys. One, um, how do you see this debate? What do you think it's really all about? And two, if you were just asked the question, uh, define infrastructure, what would you include? Bob, you want to take a first crack at that? Sure. Um, so the first part of the question is, it, is the core infrastructure that, we talk, that we're talking about, you know, really underfunded? Look, I think part of the political debate that we're seeing is what most people would call the core of core infrastructure, roads, bridges, transit, et cetera is definitely underfunded even in the Biden proposal based to need. Um, you know, uh, Biden is proposing $621 billion, which sounds like an awful lot, but that's probably what half of what McKinsey would say we're going to need over the next 10 years. So that from that measure, uh, when people say even the Biden proposal is underfunding core infrastructure, I think, I think there's something to be said for that. Um, what the Biden proposal is saying is that the definition of infrastructure needs to be much broader and needs to look at kind of some of the things that we've underinvested in in the past, um, you know, to give a, a really novel example, 
looking at more expenses around senior care and thinking about how we're going to fund the need to pay for housing and taking care of seniors as they get too old to take care of themselves. That's something that the Biden plan puts $400 billion towards, and that has never been part of infrastructure in the past. Absolutely something worth starting the conversation about. It's it's also worth remembering that that you know we're, everything is now turning around what the, we call the Biden plan. It's basically federal spend on infrastructure. Obviously, there's a ton of state level spend and even some local level spend that gets lost in the in this discussion because it pales in comparison. But um, but even at the state level and the local level, the, the under level of underspending has been um, has been a serious issue. And obviously, the Biden. The Biden plan only goes to federal, although the hope is that it's going to spark a bunch of additional uh, additional activity. And so right now, uh, given the very slim majority the Democrats have in Congress, um, Jamie, how would you handicap the chances of this happening? I think that the chance of an infrastructure package the way Bob was talking about it. So let's call it hard infrastructure that, you know, we, we didn't talk about it, but that now includes other kinds of stuff that didn't in the past make its way in things like um uh, you know, resilience infrastructure, um, you know, dams, um, climate change investments, you know, the investments that are supposed to forestall the advance of climate change, you know, uh, EV charging stations and networks, things like that. Um, I, I think if you talk about all of that, which is something like 1.8 tr- uh, trillion of the two, whatever it is, trillion dollar bill that just came out, I'd say it's better than 50-50 that it passes in some form that looks like what's been proposed um, just because it's, I mean, at this point it does, it, it's always pulled well. Infrastructure is always pulled well. Um, it appeals to something that, you know, it's a nice thing about it. It appeals to somebody, somebody in every state. Um, and as you said, the Democrats control Congress, they have to appease on the spending side. So we can talk about that later, but I do think it's better than 50, 50 that it passes. Bob, uh, you think that gets any, any Republicans come over to this thing or do you think it's straight democratic bill? I think you will see some Republicans switch across um, if the incentives are sweet enough. I think I think it's going to be pretty close to straight party lines. But as as Republicans see their colleagues and people, especially with redistricting, who may be redistricted to a district closer to them, getting roads and bridges constructed in their districts and their districts being left out. I think we do start to see some people coming across and and supporting what is ultimately a bipartisan need. Well, and you, I mean, to your point, there's no question that there's going to be a line out the door of special projects. I mean, this is, you know, this sort of cast itself as program level spending. So it's, you know, $100 billion for the road, pro- whatever. But the fact is buried inside this bill are going to be all kinds of specific projects, which is great. I mean, New York City is going to benefit from the gateway, for example. But it's hard to imagine that you're going to get all Democrats lining up for special projects and no Republicans. Jamie, you, you mentioned that's always polled well, and yet we haven't had a big infrastructure plan in quite a while. Um, why is that? Is it just because the politics of Washington are so toxic that e- even popular things can't get done? I mean, I've sat in meetings, I'm sure you guys have too, you know, endless meetings over the last bunch of years by, you know, extremely well-meaning groups trying to figure out what it is that went wrong. And it always comes back to something around communication, which I think is, you know, perfectly fine, but not very interesting. I mean, calling it something other than infrastructure, I don't think is really what's going to make the difference. Yeah, I think it has, it's a combination of, you know, the toxic politics, the failure to agree on a way to pay for infrastructure spending, um, you know, has kind of fallen apart on the between a desire not to raise taxes and a desire for the last bunch of years 
on both party sides not to deficit spend. And that's always an issue. Nobody wants to raise gas taxes. Um, you know, nobody's interested in trying something new around carbon taxes. And so in the end, it all sort of falls apart. But for whatever reason, I don't know, Bob, it'd be interesting what you think, you know, for, for whatever reason, maybe it's, you know, COVID or a new will in Washington, or just this is how Biden thinks about stuff, um, you know, on the theory that every president is going to get sort of one crack to do something really big and made and exciting. Um, this seems to be where this president is going to place his bet. Um, and he controls Congress for the moment. Yeah, I, Jamie, I think you're right. I think the big place where these bills fall apart is on how to pay for it. And one of the benefits of what the Biden administration has proposed is they found a, a how to pay for it that has a lot of bipartisan support, which is finding ways to get money that's being raised by American corporations or people who do business in America to be paid into the U.S. infrastructure program. So, you know, corporate minimum taxes, you know, re-onshoring, getting rid of offshoring, some of those types of uh, tax tax opportunities, um, certainly trying to find ways to get infrastructure, you know, businesses moved from China into the U.S. and thus paying U.S. corporate taxes. Those are all pretty saleable on both sides of the aisle. I mean, Bradley, I'd be curious to know what you think about this. I mean, there's one of the arguments that I've heard in the past is that, and this is true, this has been used for um, uh, as an explanation for all, all, all kinds of congressional de- uh, dysfunctionality, but is um, back whenever it was that they got rid of ear- earmarks, um, you know, that that uh, removed one of the easy ways to get something like an infrastructure bill across. You could no longer easily say, hey, look, you know, give me your vote and you'll get the bridge to nowhere, which, you know, seems kind of unpleasant. But on the other hand, it does make the it greases the wheels. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys and our listeners will roll their eyes at my answer because it's basically the same that I give for everything around this, which is fundamentally um, because every district is gerrymandered, because turnout is so low in the primaries, of the 15% who vote in the congressional primaries on the Republican or Democratic side, I don't think infrastructure is a key issue for them. I think a lot of people who you know might approvingly look at the event where there's a big ribbon cutting for a new road or bridge or whatever it is, um, don't actually bother to vote in the primaries. People who do are activists and their issues usually are not infrastructure. They're, they're other things. And so while in theory, there's no reason to be opposed to an infrastructure bill, if your only goal is to get reelected, which would define just about everybody in politics, um, it, it doesn't really help you that much at the end of the day either. I think on some level, most politicians know that. And so that's ultimately why it doesn't get done. And would you say, Bradley, that mobile voting is a solution to this problem? You know, that's an interesting. I never thought about that before. But um, <laughs> yeah, may, maybe it would be. Someone should, should work on that. You should think about it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give it some thought. Um, but yeah, obviously, um, to me, it, it all comes back to the same same stuff. Um what do we think in, you know, Bob, you mentioned the, the different revenue raisers. Are there any of the bills that you guys are not, uh, where the cost outweighs the benefit uh, of the spending on infrastructure? I mean, look, just from my perspective, I don't think that the cost outweighs the benefit. I think that the increase in cap in uh, corporate capital gains taxes is not huge. And I, I think the idea of uh, trying to recapture foreign profits into the U.S. Is, is not huge either. I think politically they both make sense. I think that there will need to be more as these increase, as these earmarks uh, start showing up, as members' priorities start appearing. People will have to bring revenue to the table. And it's that's going to be where things get interesting on the revenue side. What revenues come to the table late to pay for what people want? So, Jamie, you've had a ton of uh, financial success in your life. You would pay these higher tax rates. Uh, you're willing to pay the extra money uh, for not just better roads and bridges, but say for broadband and childcare. 
Um, yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't want to be held out as representative of how people feel about paying taxes. So I, yes, the answer is yes, I'd be more than happy. And I think a lot of people would. I mean, I've, I mean, you've all had conversations like this, I'm sure. People saying I'd be happy to pay for more, pay more if I thought it was showing up in the whatever, you know, quality of services or the quality of the roads or whatever. I mean, I worked for five years for a governor, Governor Cuomo, who, um, who, I mean, if he had one thing that he usually came back to as sort of a lodestar was exactly that. People really only believe in politics and government if they see it being delivered to them every day. And I think there's there's really a lot to that. Um, you know, the, the thing about paying for this particular plan is it's not done yet, right? There's going to be another half of the shoe to drop or another shoe, I guess, to drop in a couple of weeks when the next plan is delivered, which is going to be more around, you know, the care economy and um, extending some of the stuff that got proposed in the 1.9 trillion bill, like child uh, child tax credits and all that. And that's also going to cost... I don't know, a trillion, two trillion. I don't know what the numbers are. And that's also going to have to be paid for somehow. So we're not done. I guess the point is we're not done thinking about what it's going to mean to pay for all of these things. Uh, uh, we're, not, we're not really even started. So you guys are both advising the, the Yang mayoral campaign. Obviously, our, our big policy position is universal basic income. Um, you know, giving people direct cash payments wouldn't build a new tunnel or a road. Uh, but a lot of the stuff in this bill, whether it's broadband or childcare are things that people arguably could purchase through the, the market. Are we better off going through this whole process of allocating money federally and appropriating it and then sending it to states and cities and hoping it kind of achieves the goal? Or would it be better if we just put the money directly in those people's pockets? I mean, there is there are public choice problems, right? There is a tragedy that comes that people will talk about where they say, I expect that somebody else is going to pay for um, what I'm going to use. And that's that's traditionally why people look at infrastructure as something that the that the public should pay for. Um, and roads and bridges, there are a lot of people driving elect, uh, electric vehicles, me being one, who are not paying the gallonage taxes that, that they are historically built on. So I, I do think that that's a real reason why government should be involved. I think government should be involved in some of the broadband infrastructure for what it's worth. There are a lot of pieces to this bill, like the child care, like some of the, you know, increasing in affordable housing that probably could be better um, from a market market based solution, but not everything. Hey, broadband's a great example of that. I mean, you can't, it, you know, in this country, um, we have, I forget what the numbers are, but something like a quarter of people in the country don't have access to, to what we consider broadband, which is like the minute, probably just the minimum needed to, you know, if we have virtual school, virtual school and, you know, whatever, get live TV over the air TV or something. Um, and the, a good chunk of the reason why they don't have broadband. Some there's some very small number that just don't want it, but a lot of people simply don't have the infrastructure where they live to deliver it. And the reason for that is it costs a ton of money to to uh, to drop fiber to wherever it is they live because it's pretty remote. There's no way that the market the market has already failed to deliver that. So you just decided that we have to have government subsidy of some kind. So, so Jamie, where you know you, you run an infrastructure fund that that specializes in public private partnerships. You've done both personal investing and policy work around ideas like a national green bank. Where do these ideas fit into the puzzle? Well, uh, the green bank is a great example. So the green bank is actually a, um, a very well-organized 10-year effort to build a, a national green bank called the National Climate Bank. It's now called the Climate Accelerator. Um, and after having passed Congress twice in the last couple of years, uh, passed the House twice, not the Senate, um, at the $100 billion level, it actually made it into the Biden administration's plan at $27 billion and they'll probably try to increase it to 50 or so. So it's a great example. Basically, it would take $50 billion at the national level and spread it among a bunch of uh, state green banks where the state would then have the ability to, the lack, the latitude to um, 
finance basically green projects that are too small or too early stage or whatever to get market market based um, financing. It's worked really well in New York and Connecticut, a couple other places, and. The hope is that that's a way to bring the private sector and the public sector together to um, to accelerate uh, spending in an area that we really need. Um, so that's that's one example. The the rest of the most of the public private partnership infrastructure world hasn't really reached the federal government, and there's some actual technical reasons for that. Um, it's hard for the federal government to make long term revenue commitments to private parties um, for scoring reasons that I don't frankly have never bothered to delve into. So I'm not sure we're going to see a ton of new P3 activity, strictly speaking, P3 activity coming out of the Biden administration plan. Um, so, Bob, this is maybe too hard of a question to spring on you in one shot. But if anyone thinks fast on their feet, I know it's you. Um, if I gave you $3 trillion and I said, I want you to figure out how to spend this money on infrastructure, you can define infrastructure however you want. What I want, though, are the highest ROI for society. Um, where would you put the money? Yeah, that is a tough question. Um, the the key thing that I would think about as I laid it out, and certainly I would I would do some some segment of what Biden is doing, which is spreading across a lot of things. But what I would really focus on, and I feel like I get worried about the Biden plan, is not fighting yesterday's battles, right? I feel like there's a lot of being stuck in yesterday's paradigms around things like transit um, and potentially uh, things like affordable housing that maybe have uh, been done the same way for you know decades at this point. And the reality is our mobility system works differently and the ROIs could be much different if done in a different way. So I, I do think that as I look at it, if I were to be uh, given $3 trillion, I would, I would probably spend twice as much on the, the core roads and bridge infrastructure. I think that's super important. I think if you are looking at re-onshoring, you're really going to need to improve your roads. Um, you're going to need to look at doing things like truck ports for autonomous vehicles. You're going to need to do things that have huge multipliers. But then I would also spend a lot of money, um, probably more than they've done on the on the educational side. And um, one of the things that I've seen that's that's kind of underfunded in here, other than through R and D dollars, is money to higher ed. Um, and that's, you know, higher ed K through 12 education is a little bit underfunded in this in this side of the plan. And maybe that's because it's coming in the next side of the plan. As Jamie said, the other shoe is yet to drop. But for right now, that's a place where I'd spend more. I, you failed. You failed completely. You have to spend all three trillion on mobile voting. <laughs> I only need like a trillion and a half. You can have the rest back. Mandatory mobile voting because it's going to cost, I don't know, a trillion dollars to build out the infrastructure and then two trillion just to pay people to, to use it. We can solve the whole mobile voting security problem by just doing neurolinks and putting links into people's brains. Yeah, we can do that. I mean, Bob, Fine. you're the person overseeing the actual build of the new mobile voting technology. We could get it done for like the cost of like one mile of a pipeline repair, I imagine. It's true. I think you're crazy not to look at mobile voting infrastructure. I think Bob's answers were great. The one thing I would say I would add is if you could figure out a way, and I don't, you know, it doesn't cost money, but it's, you know, one of the issues with this stuff is that it just takes forever to spend government money to get it actually into the ground. And, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for that, but, you know, they all boil down to bureaucracy in some form or fashion, which often just means procurement. Um, and Biden, I think there is something in the bill, actually, that that tries to incentivize um, procurement acceleration. But I, I don't know enough about how they've gone about doing it. But I think if you can devote some kind of some pool of funding to some, you know, experimental anti-procurement plan or something like that, they focus. I think what they fit is focus around housing 
and in particular around zoning regulations. Um, so removing barriers to zoning, which is related but different. Um, but, you know, don't just not, I'm not saying default to shovel ready projects because I think that's a different kind of an issue, but just, you know, incentivize local governments to, to speed up the speed up the spending, um, I think is an easy way to return to, to, to get to a higher ROI. So could you incentivize them or what about the, you know, that, that the hammer instead of the stick or the cat stick instead of the carrot or whatever the cliche I'm screwing up here. So like when they wanted to raise the drinking age to 21, they just withheld federal road money from every state until they raised their drinking age. Why couldn't you say that you only get the infrastructure money if you adopt uh, procurement reforms? Yeah. I mean, you could, I mean, I mean, that's going to put the, I mean, just the obvious is going to put the federal government, the, I don't know, Bob is the actual lawyer. Um, so there's, I assume there's some preemption issues, but. You you're know, a lawyer. The, huh? He's not a lawyer. Okay. Well, no, Bob is, you're a lawyer too. I'm a fake, I'm a very, very fake lawyer. Bob is more of the demeanor of a lawyer. I don't have any lawyer like demeanor left. Um, uh, <laughs> now he looks offended. <laughs> I'm not, it's, it's three fake lawyers on a podcast, all pretending it's, not to be lawyers. Uh, yeah. I, I um I don't know I mean I, that is not a terrible idea I guess you put the government the federal government in the position of trying to dictate local procurement rules but you could certainly use it I mean what they do now is I mean this, this, they had this when I was at Storm when I ran Storm Recovery after Hurricane Sandy they just put a timeline on the money if you don't spend it by X date then you lose it in theory but then of course they extend it you extend it and you know you end up spending you know three million three billion dollars in the last year which is not a good answer probably yeah so, so bob this morning i was uh, reading the the post with lyle as i do every day and harper got up a little earlier and joined us and we were talking about the infrastructure bills i'm sure every family was this morning at 6 30 a.m and um she asked like a very good question which is just like so i understand that the debt just goes up but like how do we actually pay for this like what's the mechanism so I gave her an answer, but I'm curious if, if my answer was right. So what would you say? I can't promise you that my answer is going to be any righter than yours, but I will tell you it's it's different at the federal level than what you may be familiar with at the state and local level. So at the state and local level, as you know, states have to have balanced budgets. Cities have to have balanced budgets. So they issue bonds to pay for the capital projects, and then they use revenue sources that pay out over time to do that. The United States obviously has the ability to issue treasury bonds, and the, the treasury bonds and the debt loads are theoretically supposed to match up to some of this infrastructure spending over time. But the reality is we can print our own money, which means we have a looser, if we want to have a looser monetary policy, if we want to have bigger deficits over time, we can do so and we can spend over that. But ultimately, at some point, you need a revenue source that's somewhat aligned with the spending that you're hoping to pay for. Um, and the spending that you're hoping to pay for, uh, in this case, is the $2.7 trillion, and that'll be funded by a mixture of treasury bills to get it up now and the, you know, the capital gains tax increases to pay the treasury bills and to pay some of the pay as you go over time. Jamie, do you buy into the notion that some economists are saying that just that doesn't really matter because we're too big to fail, so we'll never have to pay it anyway? No, I think that's insane. But, um, but you know, there is a level of death. There's a level of deficit spending that we can withstand. It's absolutely the case that interest rates are still historically low, although they're climbing a little bit. Um, you know, the debate that's being had right now, and I don't, I think, you know, three failed lawyers we may be, we're not three failed economists, so we can't really have this debate. But there is a debate going on um, among serious, you know, serious Democratic economists about how much is too much. And it started with the $1.9 trillion bill, and now it's going to extend on through this bill and the next bill. Um, and the question, the fundamental question is, have we overstimulated an economy that was already growing or returning to growth? And are, are we, I mean, Lyle should be asking the question, is Lyle going to pay for this? 
um, down the road because, you know, it's going to lead to inflation. And, he's worried about inflation. He is worried about inflation? Yeah. He's, that, the, he's asking for the only 12-year-old that I know worried about. Is he asking for a he's raise? Worried, he's mainly worried about, like, the Avengers and Spider-Man and stuff like that, but, but he is also somewhat worried about inflation. Well, you could have him on a fixed income. I mean, if you kept him off a fixed income allowance, he would be less worried. If you let his income, if you let his allowance float, you might get there. You, you need to give him a credit card and let him borrow right now. That's the only solution. Right, we're going to change our household monetary policy. Yes, exactly. Right, the last question comes from a, a listener, and Jamie, I'm give it to you because it's a New York question. Yeah. This is from Hugo from Manhattan. Um, <laughs> Post infrastructure bill, will we still have traffic on the BQE? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, that's it goes back to one of the earlier questions. You know, are they, are they going to highlight? Are they going to uh, carve out in the bill? spending for the for the reverb refurbishment of the bqe there's you know that there's a bunch of different plans that are out there i don't think the mayor settled on one they're all incredibly complicated and it's like a 10 billion dollar i don't remember the number they call it a 10 billion dollar project the answer is yes you're going to have traffic on the bqe for the foreseeable future there's no way around it Bob, not on the dan ryan right no <laughs> no we're, we're going to make that up to 20 lanes and there'll be no more traffic it'll be fine there we go guys thank you for joining thank you thanks a lot